Why don't I pray, and then we'll come to this great passage together. Let's pray. Um, Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel. Uh, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you that uh, all those centuries ago, uh, Paul, uh, you gave him great courage, you equipped him uh, to be your servant, to take the gospel to places that had never heard it before. And uh, Father, we just pray that as we see uh, Paul's second missionary journey in Macedonia, that you would... Give us great courage as we take the gospel out. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give us soft hearts and you would change us tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Do you know a few professions have had uh, their worldly reputation changed so completely and so thoroughly over the last century than that of the missionary? I don't know if you've thought about this. Uh, In the 19th and 20th centuries, if you're a missionary... You were really you were a celebrated figure. You were a bit of a celebrity. Uh, basically, when uh, in, in those times when missionaries used to go out, uh, they'd have these sort of enormous sort of commissioning services, and all sorts of people would come and pray for missionaries. They'd come and uh, meet with them, and often immediately following, so I'm told, the commissioning services, uh, people would gather around and they'd be immediately going down to the docks to get onto the boat, to head off to wherever they were going to be a missionary, and sometimes they would never be seen again. And the whole city would celebrate this, and there'd be a sort of a fervor around, and it'd be a very big event. Uh, I'll give you a few examples of this, of the the celebrity status that missionaries used to have. So here's a man, Adoniram Judson. who, Who can tell me where he went for 40 years, spent 40 years of his life? Where, Adam? Myanmar. He went to Burma, and after coming back after 40 years, right? Do you know that he went around the U.S. giving public lectures, and lots and lots of people wanted to hear about his time uh, in Burma. Um, who can tell me where David Livingston went? Africa. Africa. Yeah, very good. And do you know that he was so popular that the New York papers, when they when they didn't know where he was, paid huge sums of money to go and try and uh, find him. I'll show you another group of men. I don't know if you know, who knows about the Cambridge Seven? Do you know where they went? They went to, sorry? Oh, yes, they went to China. Okay, I hope that's obvious by what they were wearing. In 1885, they'd all been students together at uni in Cambridge, and they all decided right after uni where we're going to go, we're going to go and be missionaries in China. But before they went, they went on a farewell tour. Right, all around England, and many, many people came to hear them speak about what the mission that they had planned in China. Could you imagine have, have that happening today? Right, could you imagine this? The Sydney Uni 6, right, going around Sydney, going on the project, being interviewed for the mission that they were going to go in Tanzania. The, the Wollongong Uni 5, right, the, the New South Uni 2, no... <laughs> I went to New South, all right, the New South Uni 27, it depends on whether you like, right? But now, missionaries, uh, we even call them different names, right, because countries don't want them. And, and academics, well, they, they consider them the lowest of the low. Uh, they're sort of, you know, viruses carrying out this archaic notion of, you know, changing cultures or colonialism and... Uh, you know, bringing minority cultures and, and, and trying to basically get rid of them and change them with Christianity. And so, you know, even Christian denominations now and parachurch organisations that used to be great in, in sending missionaries all over the world, now their theology has changed so much that 
Well, now they're just winding back their missionary-sending organisations and some of them don't even send them anymore. Because if you don't need to know Jesus in order to be saved, then why would you keep sending missionaries to other countries when they don't even need to hear about him anyway? You depressed yet? And so fair weather friends of Jesus, like those on Palm Sunday, sort of wilt away and sometimes these people have become the hardest opponents of Christianity going out into the world. I'll give you some more depressing stats. You up for this? Do you know that in 1966, uh, there's now, you know, there's 23 million people in Australia now. In 1966, there was exactly half of that. There was 11.5 million people in Australia at that point. But on any given Sunday in 1966, 2.6 million people would be in a Protestant church, right? Hearing about Jesus, uh, worshipping him. Yeah, that's a normal statistic. One in four Australians would be in church on a Sunday in 1966. Today, if we're being generous, about 9% of Aussies would have sat and done this today. One in 14, or 1.6 million people. So from 66, one in four, to 2013, one in 14. And I know that you're worried about that, because I know that you know that the slide is going this way. And even though our church is steadily growing, and that's, it's not revival, but it's encouraging... Many churches are in decline and some are in rapid decline. And so what do you do about that? Well, can I say that against that possible vision of the future is the testimony of this book, Acts. I love this part of the Bible. I hope you've been enjoying it. Uh, Because as we come to this part of the Bible, we're actually Paul... He's about to set out on his second missionary journey. So this is 50 to 54 AD, and he's about to go into Macedonia. So I'll show you a bit of a map. Okay, so can you see the cities on there? Can you read that? Yeah, fantastic. So you've got to remember that back in Acts chapter 11, that the church in Jerusalem had planted the church in Antioch. Now, how would that happen? Well, basically, Stephen got persecuted. He was stoned. Uh, lots of the Christians fleed out of there. Where did they go? They, lots of them ended up in Antioch. They went and started preaching to lots of the Jews. Many of them got converted. And so amazingly, this church was born in Antioch. Uh, News of it gets back down to Jerusalem. And who hears about it? Well, Barnabas, son of encouragement. So he ends up going up to Antioch. He finds that there's all these Christians in Antioch. And so he goes, this small sort of church is sort of starting to grow rapidly. And he works out, well, what do I need to do? I need to encourage this place. What do they need? Well, they need Paul. So he goes and gets Paul. Paul comes back with uh, Barnabas. They spend three years in this little church of Antioch, and it grows. And what does it become? This missionary-sending church. And so this church has only existed for a few years. What do they get? They get together. This is a couple of weeks ago. They fast, and they pray, and they get together, and they say, right, we're going to do something, and we're going to send our best preachers out. So Paul and Barnabas, they they... Um, uh, sort of sent off on a a missionary journey, and that's Paul's first missionary trip. Uh, They do that together until what happens? Who has a falling out? Paul and Barnabas. Over what? Well, it's because they couldn't decide whether to take John Mark with them on the next uh, missionary journey. Isn't that always sad? Why is it? And, And I do this and you do this. Why as Christians can we not always work stuff out (laughs) why can't we get the gospel to work work things out it's because jesus is perfect and we're not and we don't always perfectly apply the gospel in our relationships with each other and even the apostle paul and barnabas couldn't work it out 
But does that stop God's mission? No. No, Paul and Silas, they head off on a new mission. Barnabas and whoever else head off on another mission. So now we've got two missions instead of one because these two brothers couldn't work it out. And Paul heads off to Macedonia. Now, I reckon there's four things that we can glean from this part of Acts that will really encourage us to not be depressed by the statistics that I shared at the start. And I think the first thing that God wants us to see is that sometimes he hampers his own mission. Right? Paul is desperate to plant a church in Asia. That's where he wants to go next. But look what happens. Look at verse 6 of Acts 16. And we're just going to be looking at Acts 16 tonight. So Paul wants to go to Asia. So he wants to go up there to Bithynia. Do you see Bithynia? That's where he wants to go up there. So they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. And when they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So hang on a second. Isn't Paul meant to be the apostle to the Gentiles? And hasn't he been commissioned to take the gospel to the nations? And so all of a sudden... Why is it that, what does it say there, verse 6 and 7? They were prevented by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Of all the things that you thought would stop Paul going on his mission, it wouldn't be that, would it? <laughs> right? Th- what, what are the sort of things you'd think would stop him going on mission? Sickness, discouragement, fatigue, uh, a falling out with someone. But the Holy Spirit stops them? The Holy Spirit frustrating his own mission? That doesn't seem to make sense. It would sort of be like someone in a political party trying to bring down their own party. I actually can imagine that, but aside from that. <laughs> but imagine that's not true. No, this is just that the plans that Paul had and what God had for him were different at this point. And so he's having to sort of endure the frustration of waiting to see where it was that God wanted him to take the gospel next. And I think that's my first insight from this passage is that God often, we can only go to the places where God has prepared for us to go. Um, I'll give you an example of this, personal example. Ten years ago, right? Ten years ago, uh, I'd just finished my ministry apprenticeship. I was about to go to more college. And the plan for Lenore and I, we'd only been, do you only pray about one plan? We always do that. Lord, we hope this is your plan. And our plan, this is going to be our life. We're going to go to more college. We're going to stay on the Central Coast. We're going to go back to the church there after we finished. We're going to be on the staff there. Then we're going to plant a church on the Central Coast somewhere. And we were t- talking to the church eldership about this. And they were all excited about it. And all of a sudden, they came back to us in two months before we were starting at more college. And they said, we just don't have the money. We can't send you to college. And uh, we're just not sure if the plan afterwards is going to happen. And Lenore and I were devastated. We thought, Lord, this is the plan. The plan was to plant a church up there. Don't you want us to plant a church? Why would you stop us from doing that? And then we ended up at St. George North Anglican Church. (laughs) Right? And here we are 10 years later, and it's been 10 of the best years of our life. Right? We thought this was the whole plan. God knew otherwise, brought us here, and it's been fantastic. And I mean... How often is that true? Don't you think? You know, the job we want to have, the place we'd like to live, the friends we'd love the gospel to flourish amongst, you know, the situation in life we'd love to be in. 
And even when it seems like it's God's plan and it seems like it would fulfill his purposes and then suddenly he just puts the brakes on and he says, no, that's not what I've got for you right now. I've got something else. And how frustrating is that? Sometimes. And we've got a battle for contentment uh, to deal with that, I think. That God may not have this for me now, even though I want it now. Well, soon, Paul, um, he, it becomes clear to Paul. What does he do? He goes to the seaside, sea Troas, circled up there. He ends up by the sea. He goes to sleep one night, and like most of us, sort of wondering, I wonder what God has for me next. But all of a sudden, he gets something that not all of us get. He gets a large Macedonian man appearing in his dreams, right, in a vision. So I like to imagine Pete Rostevsky at this point, being our representative Macedonian man at this point, right? And in Paul's vision, right, the Macedonian man sort of stands up and what do you say, Pete? Come and help us! That's exactly what happened, right? Could you imagine that? I, I would obey that. Wouldn't you obey that? So all of a sudden... You know, I'm frightened now. Um, and so Paul, that's right, Paul is determined now to go over to Macedonia. He sees this as a sign, a vision from God, that he should take the gospel to Macedonia. So what does he do? He gets up the next morning. He gets the boats ready. He wakes up the, uh, Silas and says, let's go. They get on the boat and they head across to Philippi. But this time with the Holy Spirit's blessing and the Holy Spirit would not stop him. And sometimes... We've got to experience that frustration of our plans until we look, find the opportunity that God is actually opening up for us. Because mission will only flourish in the places where God wants it to flourish, not where we want it to flourish. And he ends up in this place called Philippi. Up here, remember we looked at the letter to the Philippians this year? It's, it's the Roman colony. It was the most prominent city of the time. It was actually uh, conquered by the Greeks a little while before this by Alexander the Great and he named it after his dad, Philip, so they called it Philippi. And basically Paul arrives in this city and there's not one Christian. Not that we know of. Right? Sails the boat, gets up there and I think as I read this, what do you do? Where do you even start? Where would you even go? imagine if you landed at Sydney airport and there was not one Christian in Sydney where would you even start <laughs> but Paul what, what does he do he says well I'll start in a women's prayer group I guess that's where you start <laughs> right there's a Jewish prayer group by the river and he says okay I'll go down there so that's what he does look at verse 13 this is his pattern it says on the Sabbath day we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. So there's a good place to start. Let's see if God will do something. So a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was there who worshipped God. So basically, Lydia is a God worshipper. What that means is, is that she, she wasn't Jewish, but she often prayed with the Jews. She, she'd be called a God-fearer. And she spent time with them. And she was a dealer in purple cloth. So she was a businesswoman by the river, praying. Paul shares the gospel with her about Jesus and what happens. This is beautiful. Verse 14. The Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. And what does she do next? After she and her whole household were baptized, I imagine in the river just there, she urged us, 
if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. Immediately she shows hospitality. And, she, and Paul and Silas were persuaded and they go and stay at her house. So Lydia, brand new Christian, whole family baptized, says, come and live at my house. And you know what? She continues to host the church. This prominent businesswoman, obviously with some means, and just like many women have done since then, she uses the money that she has to see the gospel continue to go out. It's a beautiful example. She's the first member of the church. What happens next? Well, Paul, he continues to preach day after day, and he runs into a bit of a problem. Another girl. Now, this girl is demon-possessed. She's a slave girl. Uh, She's used by her owners to sort of predict, predict the future and to sort of make money for them. And this slave girl, her spirit keeps on getting stirred, And she keeps on crying out things like this. These men, Paul and Silas, are slaves of the Most High God. Because evidently, the demon within her recognizes that Paul and Silas are the real deal. That they're speaking on behalf of God. And coming out of her prophetic mouth is this message that these guys are from God. Which is annoying Paul massively, this slave girl. And so what happens? Look at verse 16. Once... Paul says, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation as slaves of the Most High God. And she did this for many days. So Paul didn't do something immediately. But Paul was greatly aggravated. And he turned to the spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her right away. And so all of a sudden, she used to be able to tell the future by this demon, but now she can't, or she won't. And do you think her owners are happy about that? No. <laughs> They're very annoyed, and so they say, they, they say Paul and Silas should be thrown uh, into prison. But I think we can assume something else here, right? I assume that this slave girl, I think she becomes a Christian. Because here she is, she's demon-possessed. Paul casts the demon out of her. All of a sudden, she doesn't want to give money to her owners anymore for predicting the future. And she says, I'm free. And I want to know this Jesus whose name this demon has been cast out of by. I don't know if that's true, but it could be true that this formerly demon-possessed slave girl is the second member of the Church of Philippi. But now there's number three. And you know this uproar with this slave girl gets Paul and Silas in lots of trouble. And all of a sudden they're in trouble over this girl. Uh, But God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And he has one more member of this church that he wants to get. And he knows where he is. Where is he? He's in jail. So so how do you reach the jailer? Well, I guess you get your apostle in jail. (laughs) And that's exactly what God does. He got him in these guys in this fix, and that's what he does. Look at verse 20. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had inflicted them many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. 
And receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. So you imagine yourself. Imagine if this happened to you. You've been seized. You've been stripped naked. You've been beaten with rods. You've been thrown into jail. And not just jail, the inner jail. And your feet were you know, bound with stocks. And what happens next is exactly what we do, right? Exactly. Isn't this what all of us would do? Look at verse 25. After midnight... Paul and Silas, of course, were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. That's what you do, wouldn't it? Yeah, Amazing God, how can it be? I'm in jail for you. You know what I mean? Like, would you be doing that? I wouldn't be doing that, right? Praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners are going, who are these guys? Well, they're about to find out who these guys are. Look at verse 26. Suddenly... There was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. And when the jailer woke up and saw that the doors of the prison were open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. So basically he thought, well, I'd rather kill myself than have the Romans kill me because they'll probably do it in a painful way like crucifixion. And so I'd rather just stab myself because Paul's out of here. And then Paul calls out, hey, 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 don't. Don't don't harm yourself, right? I'm still here. What? What do you mean he's still... Is that right, verse 28? Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because I'm still here. So hang on. Paul and Silas have been thrown into jail, beaten, stripped naked, put stocks on their feet. Then all of a sudden there's an earthquake. The doors fly open. They've still got chains on them. And then... They can go free and then Paul just just stays still, just stays in the jail. Why? Why? Who would do that? Well, he did it for the jailer, didn't he? Look at verse 29. Then the jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Basically, he comes down, the jailer, and he gets on his knees and he looks up at these guys. And, and what does he say? What must I do to be saved? Now, why would he say that? He's not going to die. I mean, Paul hadn't escaped the prison. He wasn't going to die. Why would he say that? Was it because if the God who was, Paul was proclaiming was so upset that Paul was in jail that he would cause an earthquake to get them out, Do you think the jailer thought, I better be on his side. I better be with him. What must I do to be saved? And Paul, not surprisingly, sees this as an opportunity for the gospel. And he gives a beautiful answer, doesn't he? He gives the answer that I need and you need and everyone else has heard. How is it that we can be right with God? And Paul tells this jailer. Look at verse 31. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus my friend, and you'll be saved, you and your household. So then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. This is the jailer for Paul and Silas. Right away, he and all of his family were baptized and he brought them into his house, set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. Now what struck this guy, do you think? Do you think it was the earthquake that a powerful God and he was afraid of him and he thinks, oh, what must I do to be saved from him? I think he was struck by Paul. 
Because Paul, when the doors of the jail flung open, Paul stays still. If Paul left, the jailer is dead. And I think this is a great message for us, right? When you live in such a way that's attractive to the gospel, people will listen. When we live in such a generous way that it's obvious that we're followers of the Lord Jesus, and when you do stuff like what Paul did in his generosity for this jailer, then don't be surprised when people want to know who it is that you trust. I think that's what's going on in this passage. And we need to learn from that. Right? When we live such attractive lives for the gospel, it makes a difference to people wanting to listen to us about Jesus. And this is all we hear about this church. We hear, what do we hear? A businesswoman becomes Christian. A demon-possessed slave girl maybe becomes a Christian. A jailer, a government employee becomes a Christian. And God does this. This is important, isn't it? Lydia is the Lord who opens her heart. The demon-possessed slave girl, it, what did Paul say? In the name of the Lord Jesus, demon, come out of her. In other words, Paul's saying, I can't cast out demons. It's not in my name that the demons are cast out. Jesus has power over demons. Jesus slaves, saves that girl. And who causes earthquakes? Not Paul. It's God. So God saves uh, the businesswoman. God saves the jailer. God saves the demon-possessed slave girl. God was going after these people, and he got them. And can I say that I find this really encouraging as someone like you who wants to see the gospel go out? Because isn't this true that we can't save anybody? We can't. We can't save anybody. But you know what? God has plans. God has plans. Every neighborhood that we live in, every business place that we work in, every school that we go to, God has people that he's after. And all he's wanting to do is just to use us to reach them. Because if you're willing to get beaten by rods and thrown into jail, then you can save a jailer. If you're willing to be, just hang out with a bunch of women by the river, there just might be one of them who's been prepared by the Lord to be saved as a result of you talking to them. You can fill in the blanks in your own minds, right? Because this is an amazing church plan, and Paul and Silas praise God for them. But can I say, don't you think that that same power, Church in the Bank, that same power is here today? Right? Jesus is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. And what he's looking for is people who will put themselves utterly at his disposal and take risks to save jailers, and to save demon-possessed slave girls, and to save businesswomen like Lydia. That's what he's wanting us to do. Now finally, you've got to admire Paul's courage and his integrity. Because at this point, the, the authorities come in and they say, we want to let you out of jail quietly. And Paul says, yeah, of course, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go preach the gospel in the other parts. Yeah, yeah, just sneak me out the side door. Don't worry about the way you mistreated me. That's fine. No way. Paul says, no way are you going to slip me out the side door when you mistreated me like that. You're going to do this publicly. Have a look at verse 35. He's no shrinking violet, Paul. 
right? When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released. So come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in a public without trial, although we are Roman citizens and threw us in jail, and now they're going to smuggle us out secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. He wants everyone to see. Look at verse 38. Then the police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and escorting them out, they urged them to leave the town. The officials were now embarrassed, and that was Paul's idea. Right? They had, they had sh- to their shame, they had put him in prison unfairly, and he wasn't going to let them get away with it. And I reckon it's exactly the same for us. Now, Jesus did tell us to turn the other cheek. Right? What does that mean? That means to offer forgiveness. yeah. But that doesn't mean that we need to roll over and just play dead whenever someone who's not a Christian unfairly represents the gospel. For example, on TV sometimes you'll hear the claim, oh, look, the Bible was written ages ago and it was being changed so many times and like the Bible we've got now is nothing like the Bible was written then. And then really respectful journalists go, hmm, that's right. And don't you just look at the screen going, no, that's not right. And I think as Christians we should get on there and we should tweet or whatever you've got to do so that it gets on the bottom of the screen. You're talking rubbish. Right? Get your facts right. right. Because if you're going to shame Jesus and his people publicly, then if you get it wrong, you should be exposed publicly. And as Christians, we should be af- not afraid to do that. Now, we should do it kindly and graciously, but don't shrink away. Be bold like Silas and Paul. And can I say, as this church grows... Not just this church, I mean God's church. Do you think anyone can stop his mission? Well, based on this passage, no way. Uh, Let's pray together. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the amazing mission of, of Paul and Silas in Macedonia. Father, we thank you for the churches that were planted there in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage of our convictions that Paul and Silas obviously had. Father, you would help us to know that we can only go the places that you prepared for us to go, that you would, trust, you would help us to trust you in that. Father, we pray you would help us to remember too that the way that we live either brings glory to you or turns people away from the gospel. And so please, Father, continue to shape us in a way that makes Jesus attractive. And Father, we pray too that just that um, we would realize that this is your mission, that only you could save Lydia, that only you could save the jailer, that only you could save that demon-possessed slave girl, that only you can save our family and friends. And we pray, Father, you would help us to rest in that great truth. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.